Welcome to this Ask Catlin episode of The Balance. I am joined today with Chris, who worked his magic on my website, has helped me with ebooks, and he is going to help me to move through the questions we've been getting on agency. Thank you for having me, Catlin. Of course. Thanks for joining me. All right, let's kick things off. First question When should teachers give students agency? Okay, so before we tackle when we should give students agency, I sometimes work with teachers who ask, can you just define what you even mean by agency? So what we're talking about when we talk about student agency is giving students meaningful choices in the learning experience. We want them to be able to make not just trivial choices, but really meaningful choices about aspects of their learning that might be kind of challenging. So when should teachers give students agency is the original question. And often when I'm working with teachers, we focus on three moments in a learning experience or a learning cycle when we might want to consider giving students agency. So for example, we can give them agency around the content or what they're actually studying. So for example, we might allow them to choose a text in a collection that are all the same genre or type if we're going to be digging into a reading comprehension strategy, or if we are going to be asking students to kind of dig into character development or something like that. We can also give them opportunities to kind of choose the lens they look through as they explore the content, right? As teachers, we cover so much information. Our curriculum is usually, quite frankly, unrealistic in terms of what it wants us to cover. So are there moments when we can allow students the opportunity to decide what do they want to dig into? to when it comes to this big umbrella of content that we're covering. The second kind of decisions that can be incredibly powerful, especially when we think about student confidence in their abilities, is giving them key decisions about the how or the process. So we might be giving them opportunities to decide how they get from point A to point B in a lesson or a particular task, what materials they use, maybe even thinking about, do you want to do this online or offline? The more process-based decisions students have or they get to make, the more they're likely to feel really competent and confident in their ability to complete whatever tasks they've been given. Third is around the products that they create to demonstrate their learning. So when are those opportunities where we can allow students to decide how do you want to demonstrate or share your learning at the end of a unit or the end of a sequence of lessons? So those are three moments we might want to consider when we might give or when it's appropriate to give students agency. All right, so what's the next question, Chris? All right, here's the next question. Are lower elementary students too young to make decisions about their learning? I absolutely think lower elementary students are capable of making decisions. I think the key is the format in which we present them with options and choices. So at the elementary level, when I'm coaching teachers in kindergarten through second, even third grade, we really focus on choice boards, something that's aesthetically pleasing for students. And the options and choices when we're working with young learners are things that they're already familiar with. They're things that have been onboarded. You know, teachers spent some time showing them how to complete a task in a particular way or create something using particular materials. And so when we want to give young learners choices, we don't have to give them a lot of choices, but I think presenting it in a choice board is probably the best format for lower elementary. That said, we can use choice boards 
all the way from kindergarten through 12th grade to give students meaningful options as they approach everything from practice and review to exploring something like weather patterns or a holiday or health and wellness. So for me, my my suggestion is, yes, when appropriate, when it's something that younger students are already kind of familiar with, giving them meaningful choice can be a wonderful way to appeal to their particular learning preferences and interests. But what if students struggle to make choice? How should teachers handle that? Yes, and that definitely happens. Although, interestingly enough, I feel like it's actually secondary students who struggle the most when presented with meaningful choices. So when students are young and they haven't spent that much time in school, quite frankly, they're pretty comfortable making choices, right? They make lots of choices in their lives outside of school, but the longer they spend in school where they don't really decide what they learn, how they learn, what they demonstrate, or how they demonstrate their learning, it's like choices become kind of intimidating and scary. So when I work with teachers, one, It can be a lot for teachers in their design work to feel like they have to whip up all of these meaningful options and choices for students. So from a teacher perspective, to make this more manageable and sustainable, but also from a student perspective, just kind of building that stamina of feeling comfortable making choices, I encourage educators just start adding these simple would you rather options to your lessons. Because that feels doable from a teacher design perspective, especially now with AI-powered education tools where we can ask it to spit out some choices for us to present to learners. But then it also helps learners who might not have a lot of experience making choices in their kind of educational career, build up some confidence making choices. And they're not always going to make the best choices around their learning, but that's okay, right? None of us make the right choices all of the time. So we want to help them develop some confidence, understand themselves as learners, what choices were good choices, what choices didn't really work out for them. Um, As teachers, it's also helpful to kind of build our own practice of building meaningful choices into each learning experience. Well, the next question sets us up really nicely. What if students are not making good choices that work for them or challenge them appropriately? Yes, that will definitely happen. I work with teachers all of the time who are concerned about giving students agency and meaningful choice because they worry students won't make a air quotes good choice or they'll take the easy way out. We all do that sometimes, right? We all make choices that are not the best choice or not a choice that's going to challenge us. And so when I work with teachers, I encourage them to build a reflective practice into this idea of giving students agency. So if we're allowing students to make a meaningful choice in a challenging situation, so for example, maybe we are really embracing project-based learning and we're allowing students to decide how they want to kind of document and share their learning at the end of a project. They might choose an avenue of sharing. Maybe they do an original podcast or they create a Google slide deck with information or maybe they create a video. We should constantly be asking them to think about what choice did I make as a learner? Was that the best choice for me? Why or why not? What did I learn about myself from making this particular choice? And if I was presented with a similar choice in the future, 
would I make the same choice? I think it's about helping them to stretch and develop those metacognitive muscles, understand themselves on a deeper level so that as they progress through school, they are making these kind of increasingly smart choices for themselves. And there are times when, yes, students are going to make a choice that doesn't challenge them. And that's a moment for a conversation between the teacher and the learner. Hey, I saw you made this choice, but I really think you could have done X, Y, or Z. Why do you think you made a particular choice? And what if you had done something differently? And could I support you if you wanted to try something that might be stretching kind of you out of your comfort zone? So for me, it's about creating that metacognitive piece around choices and the impact of choices and how students feel about them as opposed to, hey, you know, as a teacher, I'm worried students aren't going to make good choices, so I'm just not going to give them any. I really love that. As you know, when I'm not working on your website in my (laughs) nine to five job, I'm a creative director and leading creative teams. And and one of the things I often do with my teams is give them what I call like a work journal where I have them basically like keep track of the things they're working on because they don't a lot of times have a ton of agency in the work that Mm -hmm. they get to choose. For them moving through their day-to-day lives and things happening so quickly and, and really not having that time to kind of reflect on the things that they enjoy, that I have them work on a work journal and really start to kind of rate from zero to 10 the projects they're working on and how they feel about it so that we can come back later, you know, maybe a week, two weeks. It's something that we go over time. Like, you know, we have to spend a couple of weeks on to really get a lot of data. Mm-hmm. But really give them that opportunity to have them look at their work they're doing. How is it, you know, working for them? How are they responding to it? So that they might not have, for my team at least, they may not have as much agency, but we can always kind of know like, okay, this one you hate. So Mm -hmm. we're going to move this in, (laughs) do a little bit less of that and do a little bit more. And it gives them that opportunity to really like pause and reflect because it's just so easy to just move through day-to-day life, you know, checking boxes and ticking things off then really having that moment to reflect on like what it was like working on a certain thing and like being able to like learn about yourself in that way. Well, but I think students are checking the box too, right? They get all of these different assignments and projects and review activities from teachers and they're just kind of moving through it and doing it and maybe not taking that moment. And it doesn't have to be a, an actual physical journal. It could be an online blog. It could be audio recordings. It could be drawings and sketches. But like, what do they actually enjoy? Like, I worry so many kids are going through school, jumping through the hoops, checking the boxes and doing what they're being asked to do, like the members of your team, but not really having those opportunities to appreciate like, ooh, I didn't love this or, ooh, I really love that. I'd love to do more of original podcasting or more artistic kind of endeavors in this class. Yeah. And it's with my team, I always say, like, we're not going to always get to work on the things that we love. But and if neither I, will students. <laughs> yes. And if I am able to make sure that the majority of their work, when we start compiling the data and, you know, a lot of times it's in a spreadsheet and we're averaging those numbers. And if I can get, you know, always make sure we're over five or in that six, seven range. Like, obviously, I'd love to have my team in the eight, nine, tens all the time. But the more that I can have them feeling really fulfilled and engaged and excited about the work they're doing, that when those projects that come across that they're just like, Oof, you know, how many times designers have to create like PowerPoint decks that they're just like, right, right, hate. Not only are they learning something about themselves and the things that they're passionate about, but they're also, I always say like they're filling their tank, they're filling their gas tank mm-hmm. for those times when they have to kind of like push through something that's maybe not as exciting and interesting. 
it's kind of that long game of they're always doing things that they hate. You're just the engagement is just going to completely fall through the floor and you're they're not going to want to be there. Right. And I have a plug for a future interview with James Anderson, where he talks about student agency and giving learners agency. But because in the context of that conversation, he talks about how critical it is that they feel they have agency in their lives long after school. And what you're talking about is in a professional setting, helping designers to have a degree of agency, not to feel like they're always kind of these passive receivers of tasks and commands from someone higher up, but really to be able to kind of exert force on their lives. And I think that's a really interesting connection from career to school, right? If kids never have agency in school, if they never have meaningful choice in challenging academic settings, are they going to feel confident moving into a workforce and making decisions in their professional lives if they've had no practice doing that in school? Yeah. And I I see that so much in the work that I do working with creatives and just working in a professional environment where there's so much outside of your control, but there's so many things that you can do that's so fulfilling that you love. And so finding that way, because for for me and my position as a creative director, I'm I'm helping to craft a a brand and a, a visual system for a company. For me, when I've led teams over the years, those times where those designers, they don't feel like I, I even... I bristle a bit at the term like director to direct. and mm-hmm. But in my experience, when I've really worked with creatives and they felt like they were a part of these decisions as opposed to me going, this is what you need to do and right. telling them what to do. But really, actually, all of us working together and having them be a part of that, they're so much more bought in than they would if it was just them having to design and create things they think are fitting within my vision. And and it's it's one of the things I absolutely, you know, I've loved about your work and, and working with you is is how much I see these correlations between the things I hear mm-hmm. you talk about for <laughs> students and really realizing that learning really happens the same at at every age. And, mm-hmm. and I see this in a corporate level. And and when I hear you talking about agency, it's it's something I see often in my own work with adult professionals where this is something that they need as well. Well, and I can imagine you're leading a creative team. You want these individuals to feel motivated and fulfilled. And when I work with teachers and we talk about why should we be giving students agency, part of it is it's this kind of motivational construct that we're trying to tap into. So many teachers are like, my kids aren't engaged, they're not motivated. And I'm like, well, let's talk about the psychological needs that students have to be motivated. And one of them is autonomy, one's competence, and one's relatedness. And when we think about autonomy and competence uh, specifically, agency can help us to meet those psychological needs because uh, that autonomy is really the kind of a level of independence, the ability to make some key decisions, to kind of drive your experience a little bit. And competence, as I mentioned earlier, is like when we can decide how we do something or how we share our learning, then all of a sudden we feel more confident or competent in our ability to complete a task, which means students are more likely to do it. So the more we can build in student agency, the more likely we are to kind of tap into those psychological needs that are key for motivating, whether it's learners in my educational setting or creatives in your kind of work, but all of it is incredibly important. Well, I love like the part of that that really resonates for me is, is you're gonna go so much farther 
when someone feels like instead of this being a this is something you have to do versus something this is we something we can do together Mm -hmm. you know instead of this directive of just like well this is what you have to do versus when someone feels like you know what we're into this together. Right. And it doesn't mean students get to make choices about everything, right? Whenever Dr. Novak and I are working together, it's not about, you know, kind of a free for all. It's choices in moments that are appropriate for the learner, for the teacher, for the learning environment. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that my team gets to do that they have no choice over. Right. Well, that's life. All right, Chris, what's the next question? All right. How can teachers grade student work if students make a variety of different products to demonstrate their learning? Oh my gosh, I get this question all of the time when I talk about student agency, especially in that third kind of component of giving them agency over the products they create to demonstrate their learning. So teachers get really kind of hung up on, okay, so let's say students are demonstrating their learning at the end of a history unit. And the goal is for students to answer the essential question in this unit using information, details, sources, et cetera, that we kind of covered in the unit itself. So maybe students do that in a written form, a traditional essay. Maybe they do it in a recorded speech or original podcast, or maybe they design a really visual display of information that answers that question in the form of an infographic. All three of those products, essay, original podcast or speech, or infographic could effectively answer an essential question and provide information, evidence, sources that would support the answer to an essential question. And yet teachers are not sure how to grade that, right? I have different students turning in different products. And I think the issue is we get kind of hung up on the characteristics of the products themselves, right? So If students complete a piece of writing, what are the transitions like? Did they cite their sources properly? How cohesive is the writing? Is it organized well? Um, If we think about an original podcast or a recorded speech, what was the volume like? If it's a speech, did they make eye contact? If it's an infographic, is it, you know, kind of aesthetically pleasing? These are all characteristics of the product, but they are not necessarily tied to What are the objectives of this assessment? What are the criteria that I actually want to assess? So if I'm thinking about this history example, it's the end of a history unit. Students have to answer an essential question using what they learned from the unit and the teacher is going to grade that. Well, then we want a standard aligned or skill aligned rubric where we decide on. And this is my bias, but I always tell my teachers like choose max three criteria that you want to focus on for your assessment. I work with so many teachers who have rubrics that are 10, 11, 12 criteria in terms of what they're looking at. And it is just so overwhelming for them from a grading perspective, but also for students as they're trying to take in what is this rubric telling me about my skill set, my concept knowledge. And so Keep it limited and then think about what is it really that we're trying to measure or assess with this kind of performance task or product. And honestly, if we tie that rubric to the assessment kind of criteria, to the standards and skills that were the whole reason we 
taught this unit in the first place, it really shouldn't matter what the actual product is. Does it effectively answer the question? Does it provide meaningful details and strong support? Is the explanation clear and cogent and effectively answer this question, right? So for me, it's not about the products they create. It's about teachers getting really clear about what is it I'm trying to measure? What were the learning objectives in this unit? And am I choosing to focus on criteria that are helping me to measure individual progress to those specific criteria. So we can give students agency, but I really wanna see us anchoring, especially when it comes to agency around products and assessment kind of end of unit scenarios, let's anchor our assessment strategy in these standard aligned kind of rubrics that don't focus on the aesthetics, they don't focus on some of the product specific details, but really stay focused on the skills. Well, it sounds a lot like you're talking about one of your favorite people, hmm. Simon Sinek, which is for them to really understand their why. Right. What what am, what was the whole purpose of this unit? Yeah. Then then getting really granular, you know, because that that's a big part of my work as well, which is working with stakeholders because there's a lot of times people are so eager for the end result mm-hmm. where a lot of times I have to pause, have them reflect on like, why are we doing this? What is the outcome? How do we determine success mm-hmm. before anything else happens? Because yep. then no matter what direction a project will go, because so much of my working can be so subjective, right. the direction something goes, when you're, when you're able to align on those pieces and everyone feels really good and you build that consensus, then it doesn't matter the direction things go because you always have that North Star to point back to. Well, and in education, grading, whether we like to admit it or not, is also super duper subjective. So if we're going to allow students agency and meaningful choice about the products they create to demonstrate their learning, the first thing we should do when we give them the kind of overview of what they need to do for their assessment, whether it's an authentic assessment, a project-based assessment, performance tasks, et cetera, is here's the rubric, regardless of the actual product you are going to create to demonstrate your learning, this is the same rubric and everybody has access to it because I want this rubric to act as your roadmap as you work on whatever project or product you've decided to kind of run with to demonstrate your learning. Well, the rubric is a great example to me, again, like what we would have, which would be like a job description. Mm. Like this is what's expected of you. And there's so many things when you talk about agency where someone has choice over for a job description like someone's hired for it, this is what's expected of you. Like mm-hmm. You can always think of like creative, fun ways to expand on that, but it, there's not going to be a ton of agency there. But setting that expectation early of like working together to be like, is this something you're able to work towards? Building that consensus early, everyone's working together for the same goals. So they understand what's expected of them. I'm glad you said that because a lot of times when I work with teachers, they will say, hey, this is what's expected. And they almost give students like a checklist of things they need to do. But the difference between a job description, which is kind of like, hey, here's the end point. This is what we want from you or a checklist is when we design a rubric, especially a criteria based mastery scale, like mastery, meaning like one's beginning, two's developing, three proficient, four mastery. And then we describe for each of our criterion, what does the 
product or the the output look like at each level of mastery, it's this opportunity to really communicate clearly to students as they're working on these products, hey, this is what it looks like. Here's a language that describes what developing proficient mastery looks like for this criterion at each level. And often teachers, and that honestly, before AI took some time to generate, now it is so much easier to do. But it's like, if we don't provide those descriptions and we just say, hey, this is the end result, this is what we expect, then students don't have that kind of roadmap of, hey, maybe I'm not a mastery right now, but where I'm really shooting toward is developing or proficient and I wanna try to meet the expectation that's described in that particular part of the rubric. Well, and I can imagine Imagine having those steps can be really helpful for a student that maybe is not in that mastery to see where they fall. Because right. if, if for them, it's very binary of zero, one, like end result, no result. That if they fall short of that, it really like hits their confidence. Mm -hmm. And without those steps to know like, hey, you're not all the way here, but you've made, you've made it. You've or, made progress. You're yeah. getting there. Like you have things to be proud of that. You know, there's just there is something really powerful about it. like when someone just kind of like has no wind in their sails, <laughs> uh, you know, and just really feels like they're struggling that it it can compound. And, and I, I see that with so much with my work. And I think I, I love that idea of the rubric because I can see that as, hey, you're not quite there, but you have things to be proud of. Exactly. All right. We're on to my favorite part of every <laughs> Ask Catlin episode. Time for the mystery question. And just just for our listeners to know, <clears throat> Catelyn has no idea what I'm about to ask her. I don't. And I'm not sure when this episode will drop as the person who actually edits your podcast. I should know this. But you should. It's currently Friday, December 29th. We are four days past Christmas. Uh -huh. It's the holiday season. <laughs> and so my question is a holiday-based question. Okay. And so it's a two-parter. Oh. What is your favorite holiday? Okay. And also, what is your least favorite holiday? And I'd like to know why for both. Okay. Least favorite holiday is definitely Easter. Just never been a fan of like the egg hunt. I mean, for everybody listening, if you're a new listener, you might not know this about me. If you're a regular listener, I'm sure you're picking this up. I am super type A, very competitive. And the Easter egg hunt between my sister Erin and myself each year was it was a lot. I'm also not a breakfast person. And so Easter, I associate with brunch. And so it just as a holiday. It wasn't my favorite. And I'm not a candy person. So that didn't excite me either. So should the takeaway be that you lost a lot of Easter egg hunts then? Is that why? No, absolutely not. No, I won. Excuse me. I won every single hunt ever. But it was very stressful. <laughs> okay. And then my favorite holiday... I think it's Christmas. I mean, I love Halloween. I'm a big fan of dressing up, but there's just something about Christmas. It's like dark and cozy and fireplace and the smell of the tree. And I, you know, I don't really need very much, but I love getting people things that I think they'll enjoy and just all the traditions around Christmas. I love it. Knowing what I know of you, I don't find those to be terribly surprising. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen you eat candy. No. So I want to thank Chris for joining me on this episode. So I'm not answering your questions all by myself. So thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining me for this Ask Catlin episode. And if you have questions about 
anything related to education, AI, work-life balance, I would love to have them so I can incorporate them on a future Ask Callan episode. So you can find me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Catlin underscore Tucker, on Instagram, at Catlin Tucker, or on my website, CatlinTucker.com. 